Good morning. <clears throat> Certainly great things he hath done. That's amazing, isn't it? The word tells us that creation sees it. The cosmos understand their maker. And yet we, in our pride, in our arrogance, and in our rebellion, we say no. We say no. I'm just freshly reminded of our lowliness in light of the word and in light of singing that psalm this morning, that song. And so I, I pray that as we go to the word, we would be hungry, <laughs> that we would take hold of the promise of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount that says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be satisfied. And so please, I exhort you all to come hungry with the word dwell richly within our hearts as we feast on it today and with the spirit rule and reign in our midst. We're continuing in our study of Genesis. We're coming to a place where we're seeing the redemption, the rescue of Israel, Israel as a, as a nation, Jacob's people. We're seeing it finally wrought in the narrative of Joseph. And so we're going to be in Genesis 40, excuse me, 46 and 47 this morning. Um, we will be reading both chapters, but I, I really am going to be narrowing down on really a specific charge from those two chapters. The title of this sermon is Following in Faith. Following in Faith. And so just to catch you all up, if any of you have missed previous Sundays, um, for the past few weeks we've been looking specifically at Joseph's narrative. And if you recall, Joseph was a son of Jacob who, as a young boy, as a teenager, he had dreams, and these dreams told him that his family would one day bow down to him. And his brothers were jealous of him. Also, he was greatly loved by his father. The text indicates that he was his father's favorite. And so, in hatred, his brothers went to kill him, but rather than killing him, they decided to sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt, and while there, he is a servant in the household of Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife attempts to seduce him, and when she doesn't get what she wants, she slanders him and accuses him of, of coming on to her, and thus Joseph is put in prison, and while in prison, we see that the Lord establishes him within the, the prison as a leader among the inmates, and Potiphar, all the while, is the captain of the guard who's also in charge of this particular prison. And so we see the Lord is with him despite his circumstances. And from there, he prophesies. He, has, he prophesies regarding the dreams of two other inmates who were political prisoners, if you will, the cupbearer and the baker of Pharaoh. And because of the actions there, eventually, two years later, he prophesies uh, and reveals the mystery of Pharaoh's dreams. And Pharaoh now has established him as the top authority in all of Egypt. And he is only second to Pharaoh. Pharaoh has said, no one is greater than you. And all will bow to you. And so he has been established as the man, if you will. And all the while, as a part of him revealing the mystery of Pharaoh's dream, a famine was coming. And so in prudence and in God-given wisdom, he had been stashing aside. They've been taxing the Egyptians and setting aside grain and produce and goods to prepare for this famine to come. Well, now the famine had hit and his brothers had journeyed into Egypt because they heard there was grain. And so over the past few weeks, we've been as worked as uh, walked us through the narrative of Joseph testing his brothers, but then eventually having compassion on them because they see their love towards their youngest brother, Benjamin, and he reveals himself to them. And now, now we're at a scene in which 
Joseph has sent wagons to, and caravans to bring his family into Egypt, to bring his family to Egypt. And so um, we're starting right there in chapter 46. And we're going to read it all, but I want you to just know of several things. This is really a fulfillment of all the promises that God had first given to the patriarchs, and specifically uh, the promise to, to establish them as a nation. And yet, this scene, we've been dealing with Joseph, this scene is primarily about Jacob. We see that the two chapters make up one scene within the narrative, and this scene has bookends regarding Jacob. And so Moses, being the author of Genesis, he's bringing it back full circle. He's bringing it back full circle that what has been happening within the life of Joseph is now, is now being manifest as the salvation of Jacob and his people, the nation of Israel. And so keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. And if you will, join with me, please, to Genesis 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Er, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dina. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Hagi, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Erodi, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Berea, with Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Berea, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jazil, Guni, Jazer, and Shalem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. 
And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are a hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock, if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him and the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvests you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, that's 20%, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please the Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus, Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, Put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Let's pray as we continue.
Father, we praise you for your word. It is the revelation of your manifest works and character. It is the revelation of your kindness towards us. It is our food, Lord. I pray that we would cherish it as such. Lord, would you please, by your spirit, illuminate it before us today, that we would see you rightly, that we would worship you appropriately, and that we would marvel at your goodness and your grace. Thank you that you have given us your word, and we have the privilege and the opportunity to be together, to look into it, to search within it the mysteries contained within. Lord, please unveil them to us today. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear that you might be magnified within us and before us. It's in your name we pray, King Jesus. Amen. So, it's a big overarching narrative, and yet I hope you saw it. It's very plain. The scene started with Jacob, and it ends with Jacob. The emphasis, therefore, is Jacob. Why? Why? Well, at the start of verse 46, what happens? He's gotten word, Jacob has gotten word, the patriarch of Israel, that Joseph is alive and has made provisions for him to go to Egypt. And so they begin, they set out to go. But he stops in Beersheba. And so here we are at point number one. We must seek the Lord always. We must seek the Lord always. Beersheba is incredibly significant, okay? It, it, it should be, you know, blinking in your head if you've been uh, paying diligent attention to this sermon series. Beersheba is incredibly significant. Abraham first established Beersheba as a location of worship after he made an oath with Abimelech. Abraham went to live in Beersheba after the Lord tested him uh, regarding Isaac. So after the Lord told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and the, the angel stepped in to spare Isaac, Abraham goes then to Beersheba to live. Isaac himself, as an adult, settled in Beersheba after another well saga with another Abimelech. The Lord appeared to Isaac, remember Isaac being the father of Jacob. The Lord appears to Isaac at Beersheba in the night and reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant. And he adds to it, fear not, I am with you. So Isaac's the first of the patriarchs to, take a, to be given the promise, I am with you. Abraham never heard that. And so it's significant, I am with you. Isaac and his family live in Beersheba. They have settled in Beersheba, Jacob presumably lived a good portion of his life there. And it's from Beersheba that Jacob flees towards Haran when he's running for his life from his brother Esau. Okay, it's significant that he stops there. Also, it seems that it's the, most, the southernmost point until you leave the land of Canaan. Imagine this. You had been receiving promises from the God of your fathers that you would inherit a land. You and your sons and your sons' sons would inherit a land. And in that land, you would be made into a nation. Previously, to the other patriarchs, God explicitly said, don't go to Egypt. And yet now, Jacob discovers his son, his long-lost son, is in Egypt. And he begins the trek there. But he stops. He stops. He stops to worship. And it's significant that he, before he crosses the border and leaves the land of Canaan, he worships. It's significant that it's in Beersheba. And while there, what happens? In the night, the Lord calls out to Jacob. He says, Jacob, Jacob. Jacob responds, here I am. Here I am. Another textual clue. This should, again, cause us to be alert in the text. Every other time we've heard this phrase, something significant has been happening within the overarching drama of God's redemptive story. Here I am. All of the previous patriarchs had an experience, 
and other figures as well, not just the patriarchs, where the Lord called out to them, and they said, here I am. Further note, further note, is that this is really the only appropriate response to God. If God calls you, we say, here I am. There is no other response that does justice to the call of God. For you that are parents in the room, how many of you are pleased when you call out to your children or you command their attention and they ignore you? Think about it. And God says, Jacob, Jacob, here I am. Here I am. It's the only appropriate response. So Jacob has stopped in Beersheba. He's gone to worship. He made sacrifices. So we, we know he's seeking the Lord. All right? You, you don't worship in spirit and in truth unless you want to be near, unless you're drawing near, you're seeking his face. It's not worship if it's not. And so before leaving the land of promise, Jacob stops. He worships. He worships. Verse 3, the Lord, in verse 3, the Lord reaffirms the covenant promises to Jacob and he graciously commands him to not be afraid. He even continues by saying, look, it's in Egypt. I'm going to go with you, but it's in Egypt that I'll make you a great nation. It's in Egypt that I'll make you a great nation. So Jacob, in this instance, is serving as an example to us in seeking the Lord in all that we do. If you noticed in the, uh, the big narrative, when Pharaoh asked Jacob, how old are you? He says, well, I'm 130 years old, but my days have been few and evil. <laughs> I think he really meant that. I don't think he was just trying to skirt around the blessings of God on him and his life. I think he really meant that. He, he has been a man who has had to run from his brother after death threats. He was basically a, a prisoner to his father-in-law for 14 years. He has been in disputes and arguments. He's seen, he has been a, a, a poor husband, a poor father. And he has had the repercussions of all those things fall upon him. And he says, my days have been few and evil relative to the days of my fathers. And yet, and yet, in this hint of just restoration, in this last scene of Jacob's life, he pursues the Lord. He does not neglect the one thing. He stops and he worships and he seeks him. He seeks him. Jacob serves as an example to us. Look, in Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, Solomon says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Many of you have heard that verse. But it continues, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. There are, there are conditional promises in the scripture. As those who belong to God in Christ, there are promises that are ours because they are, they are solely bound to Christ. They have been blood-bought by him. But we also see other promises in the scriptures that are actually conditional. And the condition for the promise or for the blessing is on us. It's not our salvation. It's not an eternal condition because all that is banking on the blood of Jesus. But listen to these. Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Indicating if you do this, he's, he's still close now. So if you do this, he'll respond. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. When you seek me with all your heart. Matthew 7, 7, Jesus teaches, look, ask, seek, knock. Ask and the answer will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. None of those things will happen unless you first ask, seek, knock. He even teaches us in how we ought to pray. He says, pray like the persistent widow who annoys the wicked judge. 
he relents and he gives her justice, not because he's a good, righteous judge, but because he's annoyed with her. (laughs) Jesus says, pray like that. He wants us to annoy him. Not literally, but you get the picture. We must seek him. Anything less than that, anything less than that is rebellion. And it's denying the privileges that were purchased for us in the covenant of Jesus' blood. And then finally in James, James 4.8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's conditional. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What a promise that is. What a promise that is. But it won't be had. It won't be taken a hold of unless you first draw near. And again, please don't misunderstand me. These are like blessings on top of the greatest blessing of covenanting with God, salvation through Christ. You know, you know the phrase, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Well, no. In Jesus, you can have your cake and eat it too. But the conditions are determined by him and him alone. We can have the fullness and the richness and the blessedness of knowing God in Christ according to his will and his ways. And so Jacob is an example of this. He stops. He says, before I go too far, I need to know if this is really of the Lord. I need to know. We know he's scared. The text indicates it. The Lord says to him in verse 3, Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. And listen to this, verse 4. This is amazing. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. The Lord says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. Being the people of God means that we belong to God and belonging to him infers submission to him. It means we're his possession. That's why we can't, as the clay, say to the potter, what are you doing? Why have you treated me this way? It doesn't work that way. Jacob understands that and he seeks him. But then he's given this promise that I myself We'll go with you down to Egypt. Think, of, think about all the decisions that we will make over the course of a lifetime. And now think about those past decisions and perhaps the ones to come. And I, w- I want you to consider how much you've diligently sought the Lord in those matters. Matters both big and small, but I'm going to give some big examples. Dating, marriage, Family life, education, vocation, location, purchases, travel, retirement. All these things are huge life decisions. And it's so easy for us to be so fixated on the here and now that our minds are set on the natural. When being united with Christ ought to set set our view heavenly and to seek him in these matters and really really ask him what he wants us and what he wants what he wants us to do and what he wants from us to pray like that annoying widow that's what he's asking of us because anything less than that is presumptuous it's ignorant And it's negligent. It's negligent. It's so easy with mere natural reason and rationale to say, of course this is the decision I ought to make. For Jacob, it seems so obvious. My son, my long lost son is in Egypt. Why wouldn't I pack up everything and go to him? And yet he understands that the Lord, his ways are not our ways. There's a chance he doesn't want this. 
And so he, he worships him. And in that moment, the Lord is kind and gracious and reaffirms all the covenant promises and says, no, I am taking you there. But don't misunderstand this. When the Lord says to him, I myself will go down with you, it's not, oh, I'm going to follow you down there. This is your choice. And because I promise to be with you, because I'm a good God, I'll just be there. In a very real sense, in God's omnipotence and his omniscience and his omnipresence, he's everywhere always. But in another sense, in, in, a, in a worshipful sense, in a sense that's really conditional, he's only with us when we're following him. And it's evident that God has been leading Jacob and his family there. How do we know this? Because right after that, it says, and I will also bring you up again. And it's clear from the entire narrative, spoiler alert, at the end, Jacob, excuse me, Joseph will say, hey, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. God has been behind it the entire time. It's God taking Jacob to Egypt. And in taking him there and saying, I am leading you there, I am with you. But I'll also bring you back again. The land is still going to be yours. I am not revoking my promises. The word I gave you at the start is still true. Too many times, I think we make stupid decisions. And I, I really mean that. I'm one of them. I'm, I'm guilty of this. It's just stupid decisions. And we think, God's gracious. He'll just cover it up and fix my stuff. That's a terrible life to live. In what world does it make sense that I would continue to live for myself when self only got me death and then just pretend that God's going to come and fix it? He's going to come and pick up the pieces, kind of like how uh, a mom and a dad walks after their toddler picking up stuff that they've dropped, food on the floor. When he's called us to seek him, He's called us to draw near to him and hear from him before we go. No, I want to be led by him. And in following him, he is with me because I'm with him. Do you see that? And therein lies point two. We must go where he leads. We must go where he leads. Think about how, well, first this, God's covenant promises are only ratified to those who actually belong to God through a covenant, okay? They're only ratified. They're only made real and substantial and true to those who belong to him in covenant. We saw that Jacob sought the Lord. The Lord establishes and confirms Jacob's journey to Egypt, and then the Lord reaffirms the covenant promises first given to his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Okay, it's because worship had been initiated from Jacob. And again, don't misunderstand me. What I'm not saying is that all of this is bound on our performance and that somehow we should be anxious about everything we do in life because uh, what, if I, what if I make the, a mistake? What if it's wrong? What if I don't hear from the Lord? That's, that's not what I'm getting at. But I think we have to be honest with ourselves and how often we just live based off our instincts or live based off the ebbing and flowing of how life is going rather than saying, no, I will first seek God. And as he leads, I will follow. So notice this, that his covenant promises are only ratified to those who first belong to him. Think about this. How absurd would it be for someone who is not a Christian to pick up the Bible, to read it, and then to believe that the blessings of God are for them with no other condition being first met. Meaning, they don't actually believe Jesus is who he says he is. They don't want to follow the words and the commands of Christ, but yet they want to grab a hold of those promises and say, this sounds good to me. How absurd would that be? And I think if we're honest, we sometimes treat the scriptures that way.
the promises only belong to those who first belong to God. In the new covenant, we can only belong to God through the blood of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Don't miss that. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You cannot say to him, Lord, I'm heading this way. Thank you for the promise to be with me till the end. I'll see you there. It doesn't work that way. No, Jesus' words, I've been thinking a lot about this lately. And so it's nothing short of miraculous that Ben decided to preach more text than he was supposed to. And this text got landed on me because I had no intention of preaching from this section of Genesis. But I've been dwelling on this a lot lately. It's so evident in Jacob's example. When Jesus calls out to us, his words are both grace-filled, but they're also terrifying. When he says, follow me. And if you've never saw that I'm not sure you've seen the whole picture of what he really means by follow me. It's grace-filled because he's calling out to you and he's saying, I love you. My, my, My work is for you. I have revealed myself to you. And I'm calling you to life. It's grace-filled, but it's also terrifying because it says, die. Die. You cannot be your own. Let go of everything. Everything. If you really are going to follow me, you belong to me. Feel the weight of that. Feel the weight of that. And so we look at Jacob and we see that he understood the weight and the call of obedience. So he stopped in Beersheba. He stopped and he worshiped. And it could have been, this is hypothetical, that God said, no, turn around, stay in the land. You'll never see your son again. That's not beyond something that God might do. It isn't. It's simply not beyond something he could do. But we're so presumptuous with how he works. We take for granted the simple call of his word and the simple command to obey. But let the weight of Jesus' call come down and let it wash away sin and self and free you up to obey. Because Jesus says, follow me. Like the Lord promised Jacob, Jesus also promises to be with us even till the end of the age. But again, see the connection. We're following him step in step. And because he's right there and we're letting him take the lead, he's with us. And what I'm not saying is there won't be seasons of darkness in your life or hard seasons of the soul where he feels distant or you feel off and maybe there's no sin involved. Maybe it's just a season in which he's purging you, in which he's testing you and refining you. And the promise is still there even when you don't feel him. Even when you don't even know if you're following him, the promise is still good because it banks on him. But don't miss the connection that he's there because we're following him. We're going where he leads. Jacob sets out to Egypt initially because of Joseph, but not primarily because of Joseph or even because of a famine, but because the Lord his God led him there. We must go wherever he leads, no matter the cost. It is in the abandonment of self and full obedience to God that true freedom and joy is found. Verse 7.
He takes his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters. All his offspring he brought with him to Egypt. When he calls us, we must bank everything on him in the call he's given us. Jacob spares nothing. He spares nothing. He takes his entire livelihood, his entire family down to Egypt. The promise that he had previously been given that the land of Canaan would be his and that the Lord would establish his people there as a nation. The Lord says, I'm taking you elsewhere, but just for a season. Now pick up your things and go. Pick up your things and go. And he does it. He doesn't spare anything, but he takes all. Obedience is better than sacrifice, but obedience will still cost us. It will still cost us. However, listen to this. Following the Lord is and will be our greatest joy, our deepest satisfaction, and our highest privilege. Following the Lord is and will be our greatest joy, our deepest satisfaction, and our highest privilege. There's nothing better. There's nothing better, no matter the cost. I'm going to read a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Discipleship. This book was written, I've mentioned it before. We all have probably. This book was written in light of Nazi Germany. Bonhoeffer was terrified and disgusted that the majority of the Lutheran church had just so easily taken a hold of Nazi ideology with no consideration to the scriptures. And so this book is written to reveal what real, authentic discipleship looks like. And he uses the term discipleship to simply mean following Jesus, following Jesus, being a disciple. And in this process, in responding to the call, Bonhoeffer says this, former things are left behind. They are completely given up. The disciple is thrown out of the relative security of life and into complete insecurity which in truth is absolute security and protection in community with Jesus. Out of the foreseeable and calculable realm, which in truth is unreliable, into the completely unforeseeable coincidental realm, which in truth is the only necessary and reliable one. Out of the realm of limited possibilities, which in truth is that of unlimited possibilities, into the realm of unlimited possibilities, which in truth is the only liberating reality. Yet that is not a general law, it is rather the exact opposite of all legalism. Again, it is nothing other than being bound to Jesus Christ alone. This means completely breaking through anything pre-programmed, idealistic, or legalistic. No further content is possible because Jesus is the only content. There is no other content besides Jesus. He himself is it. When Christ calls you. He is the substance of the call. What looks like a loss is really a gain. What feels like death is really life because you get Jesus. He's the substance of it all. There is no greater thing than to say, Here I am. I am yours. There's nothing better. And too many of us are clinging to trinkets and things and ideas and goals and dreams when the Lord wants us to say, put it down. Put it down and follow me. Just put it down. We must go where he leads us. Always. Last point, we must remember the promises of God in the land of our sojourning. Now we're jumping to the end, chapter 47, verses 27 through 31. This is amazing. Remember, we, we went through the genealogy. That's important because it's history. We're seeing that this actually happened, that a people actually got rescued out of Canaan and got delivered into the land of Egypt. 
And we see this people established in the land. And then we see that famine has destroyed the land. And that the Egyptians themselves had become servants of Pharaoh. That they had been brought low. And yet what happens to Israel? Verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And they gained possessions in it. They didn't lose anything. They gained They gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh. That's another textual hint. And promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt But let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Look at how amazing this is. 17 years in the land of his sojourning. In a far off land, away from what God had told him would be his home. 17 years, and yet all the while, the Lord caused him and his family to prosper, to be established, to be rooted even, to have possessions. Egypt was brought low, but Israel was made high. And yet, Jacob is not banking on any of that. He doesn't bank on any of it. These kind of circumstances could easily cause us to feel comfortable, to feel at home, to feel, well, blessing is here, therefore God must have changed his mind. I'm going to hang out here, and I'm content here. No, no. Jacob refuses. All the while, Jacob remembered that he was in a far-off land. Egypt was not his home. Egypt was not his home. Despite the success, the possessions, the multiplication, and the exaltation over and above the Egyptians, Jacob has never forgotten the word of the Lord. By faith, by faith, Jacob calls out to Joseph and says, and commands him, do not bury me here. Do not bury me here. Take me back. The Lord promised him he would take him back. And so by faith, Jacob says, take me home. He recalls the promise that the Lord gave him 17 years prior. 17 years. The promise that I will bring you back up again. Just consider this. Consider this. Jacob didn't simply heed the word of the Lord 17 years prior to get by or to get just to the next step. Though sometimes I'm very sympathetic to that because sometimes it feels like we're all just hanging on by a thread. And the Lord's just leading us kindly and mercifully. I understand that. But he didn't just do that. He grabbed hold of that word. He grabbed hold of the promise and he hid it in his heart. He hid it in his heart. He took a hold of it by faith and never let go. There will be times in your life, I'm sure you've already experienced them, when the only direction that the Lord has given you is the last one. So what do you do? Do you think he's abandoned you or forsaken you? No. No, he's given us his testimony. As those who belong to him in Christ, he's given us his spirit that bears witness to us that we belong to him. He's given us one another to live in community, to be family. And he gave us a word at one time. Whether in difficulty or in ease, whether in plenty or in want, we must fight to stay faithful. We must continue to set our mind on the things that are above where Christ is seated. Like Jacob, we must remember that we are living for a different country, a heavenly one, and that this is not our home. This is the land of our sojourning. In writing about this, Peter writes to the dispersion 
Eric has already given us in our call to worship the intro to this, and that because of the realities of what we have in Christ, because of what's been purchased for us, because of what's been deposited, and because of the work of sanctification that's going on, Peter writes to the dispersion and says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We, like Jacob, are in a land of exile. This is the land of our sojourning, and yet we are living for another home. We have been called out, we have been saved and spared, and we now belong to another. And he says, be holy, for I am holy. Live according to your citizenship, not according to your location. So um, as we wrap things up, following the Lord requires faith, and being faithful requires following. Do you see that? I made an inverse sentence here. To say it another way, the one who has faith will obey. And the one who obeys will have faith. Two parts to the same coin. It is ours. It is given to us. It is ours to seek the Lord always. In all seasons, in all circumstances, in all things, we must seek him. It is ours to go where he leads us. No matter the cost, no matter the perceived difficulty or loss, we must follow him. It is ours to remember his word. For us who belong to God in Christ, the word is ours to believe, to cherish, to depend on, to follow, and to hide in our hearts. It is his gift to us. May we, as his people, church, follow our God and our King faithfully until the end, knowing that his promises are true because he is faithful. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for acting presumptuously in regard to your will and to your ways, for living according to our own desires and our former passions, for not humbling ourselves before you and living in the fear of you. But I, I pray even now that your spirit would bring about true heavenly conviction that there would be no worldly guilt but that we would experience the true conviction of the spirit that leads us to godliness and righteousness and sanctification. Lord, we are your people for your possession. Please, have your will and your way within us. Please have command of our lives. Lord, I pray that you would lift up our drooping hands, that you would strengthen our weak knees, and that you would make straight the paths of our feet. Lord, would we not bring about shame or dishonor to your name? But I pray that in all things, we would seek you we would obey you and that we would magnify you as we treasure the word you've given us. Father, thank you for sending your son who completes this work within us. That everything is bound on him. That Christ is our salvation. He is our righteousness. He's our sanctification. He is our everything. And that you have made a way 
Lord, thank you for being kind and merciful and loving us despite us. Again, have rule and reign in our midst. Continue to sanctify us and conform us to the image of your son that we would truly be the people of your pasture. I pray and I ask all this in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.
When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but His smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt or a fear, not a sigh or a tear, can abide while we trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Not a burden we bear, not a sorrow we share, but our toil He doth richly repay. Not a grief or a loss, not a frown or a cross, but is blessed if we trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. But we never can prove the delights of His love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor He shows, for the joy He bestows are for them who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at His feet, or we'll walk by His side in the way. What He says we will do, where He sins we will go, never fear, only trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. You, you should know that there was no orchestration of those songs to come following that sermon. But how prescient it all is. It's amazing. I think the Lord really wants to speak to us. And don't we have that expectation when we gather and when we seek Him? Is that He really would speak to us. We have His Word, we know He is speaking. So let's seek him that we might find him. Let's draw near that he might draw near to us. For our benediction, I simply want to read this. In Mark 2, verses 13, it says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. It's that simple. When he calls you, heed the call. Heed the call. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy on us that we would rise and follow 
here we are. Lord, we are asking that you speak to us and that you lead us. And that our strivings, our comings, and our goings would not be in vain, but would be all for you. Nothing else is worth it. I know I want nothing less than, but to live according to your will and your way. To be clay in your hands. Because I know there is nothing else that will satisfy. Please, would you cause us to hunger and thirst for righteousness to be satisfied in you and you alone that we would delight in your word that it would be our bread and our drink Lord be with us now show us how we ought to live in light of your word and by the power of your spirit thank you for Jesus who is our savior thank you for his person and work that has brought about salvation to all who repent and believe we praise you today as your people again in the name of jesus we ask and pray all this amen